I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. The show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find out more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. You can also find us on Facebook under Heterodox Academy and on Twitter at HDX Academy. I'm excited to be interviewing Alice Drager today. She is a bioethicist and most recently author of Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and One Scholar's Search for Justice. Alice is no stranger to controversy. I'm sure many of you know of her work, and you know that she left Northwestern University after the university attempted to censor some of her own academic research. Today I'm going to be talking to Alice about the issue of university branding and how concerns over the university brand have caused universities to put more pressure on professors and students to not do anything very controversial. So here is Alice Drager. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to talk about a recent essay you published. You've also broached this topic in um, lectures, but you talked about university branding in this essay that you published for the Chronicle of Higher Ed. So can you talk about the gist of that essay? Sure. I mean, the, the essay looks at three pressures on academic freedom today in universities, one being sort of self-censorship coming from the left, one being uh, money and power coming from the right, either through Republican governments, mostly in state situations, but also from uh, organizations interested in purchasing access to push a conservative agenda. And then the third one is this branding approach being used by university faculty administrators. Um, so what I basically mean by that is this approach that administrators are trying to create corporate brands from universities. And of course, brands are fundamentally about having a singular message. Universities are supposed to not having a singular message. So the whole concept of branding in a university to me is disturbing. But the where this came from was this move among university administrators that started about 20 years ago towards thinking that the corporate approach was the way to go. And we got a lot of encouragement from that, from donors who were wealthy, who had used corporate approaches to make money, but also from a lot of, um, frankly, state legislatures in terms of public funding, and then from foundations in terms of uh, private universities. So this approach moved towards sort of cohering singular brands within universities, making sure that there was a single color being used for whatever the color of the university was, making sure that there was a new modern logo, uh, motto that you know, says something vague yet exciting in the way that um, shoe companies have and coffee companies have. And then this has really, unfortunately, I think, leaked down into issues of academic freedom. So the way I experienced that was that I had published a piece in our um, academic magazine slash journal, a piece called Atrium at Northwestern University. I was in the medical humanities and bioethics program in the medical school. And this was a pretty edgy journal slash magazine that we put out once a year in medical humanities themes. So the themes were things like the liminal power, typical humanities kind of stuff. The one I was assigned to edit was the theme of bad girls. And one of the pieces I solicited, um, or we put out a general call for proposals. One of the pieces we got back was a piece by William Peace at Syracuse University, who's a disability studies scholar and cultural anthropologist who talked about a time that a nurse in 1978 with whom he was friends in a rehabilitation hospital had given him oral sex to reassure him that his sexuality was still functional, that he was going to have a good sex life, that he could look forward to a good sex life. He was only 18 years old at the time. He was paralyzed from the waist down. 
And what ended up happening was my dean, Eric Nielsen, who's still the dean of the medical school at Northwestern, decided after this was published that this had potentially violated a branding agreement with the corporate hospital, um, the hospital corporation that is affiliated with Northwestern, and he ordered it censored. He ordered it taken down offline. He couldn't pull back the 3,000 high-gloss paper copies that had already been mailed out, but he required that that be taken down. And what was much more disturbing was that he also required um, that atrium from then on be subject to a new editorial committee, which we called the censorship committee, which was made up of the dean's office and the PR department. And they would decide what themes we could use, what our calls for proposal would look like, which proposals we could accept and what we could publish. I mean, full blown censorship, basically. So um, that was really disturbing. And what was interesting to me, I was finishing the book, Galileo's Middle Finger. I hadn't really dealt with branding in that book. I really dealt with pressures from the left in that book because to me that was really something that nobody was talking about and it was something that was becoming quite insidious. So I talked a little bit about pressures from the right, but the book is really about pressures from the left. And so just as this book was coming out, here I was facing this whole new thing that at some level is much more powerful. And as I say in the Chronicle essay, you know, people on the left who are trying to basically shut down uncomfortable scholarship or difficult speech or speakers that they don't want to hear, they're really building, I think, power tools for the corporate masters that are heading universities now in terms of giving them the message, if something upsets us, we better not have it. So that's where I see it really dangerous is that the the corporatization of universities is dangerous to begin with. But if the left is going to essentially say we can shut down stuff that somebody might be uncomfortable with, that empowers the corporate overlords basically to decide what it is we can teach and research and say. I can see how uh, that change has occurred even in universities I've been affiliated with in terms of branding. I've worked on websites at, a, at least one of the universities that I've been at, and uh, I know that you have these guidelines just like in a corporation. It, it's getting quite creepy, actually. I mean, you know, the, there's this singular message and it leaks down all over the university. So I live in East Lansing, Michigan, and Michigan State's motto at the moment is we will, Spartans will. And um, when I went to a club sport game recently, the students were using that as the club sport cheer. And the idea that, you know, we will provide public service seems to me really great, but it's a little bit unnerving when what you see is everywhere you go, exactly the same message being given. And everybody in the university is supposed to stay on that message. And if they go off message, I think it's it's pretty clear there's a lot of discomfort. So when did you start to notice this in your career? I really, I mean, I remember actually, um, so my, my dirty past is that I was in college for a year and then I dropped out and I became a mortgage broker on Long Island for five years. And so I worked in a corporation for five years. I helped run a small corporation that was doing mortgages on Long Island. Um, and I remember, you know, we worked on the brand of the corporation. And so we were very careful to get a letterhead that made us look very impressive, to get a logo, to use a font. We were very particular about all of that. And then I went off to graduate school to Indiana University back in the good days when it, there, this had not yet cohered. Um, and I ended up getting my first tenure track job at Michigan State University. And I remember there was a moment in the early, in mid-1990s when they were shifting the letterhead over. And all of a sudden, the logo of Michigan State University shifted to be, as it turned out, exactly the same font that we had used for my mortgage brokering. <laughs> and I remember thinking, 
oh God, like that is the logo we used because it was the logo that said we are a powerful corporation. And it, I remember it giving me the creeps and thinking I liked the older logo that was a sort of we're a state university logo. It was not a we're a corporation logo. And so I started thinking about it at that point. And I started about probably about seven years ago, because I was working at Galileo's Middle Finger starting about then, I started talking with people as I went around to other universities, what are you seeing in terms of changing over to marketing strategies? And they would tell me over and over again the same story, which was that somebody on the trustees had decided to hire some marketing consultant, often their own companies, as it turned out, often conveniently the company of one of the trustees. And they would hire these places in for millions of dollars, and they would work on the corporate branding strategy. And so now, Nowadays, um, as I mentioned, I, I still live in East Lansing, and I run a newspaper for East Lansing for complicated reasons. I run a nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit news organization. And so I'm on the list from Michigan State for their PR announcements. And where it comes from is media relations and brand strategy. It actually comes from an office called Brand Strategy. So every time I'm getting a communication that's about something of significance, and this might be, you know, we have a threat that somebody's going to have a shooting, and so you're going to see extra security on campus in the next three weeks. It's coming from Brand Strategy. And so everything now coming out of universities is, from the, corp from the top level down, is focused on this corporate model that really is thinking about branding and thinking about messaging. And you can see this because... When there are scandals at universities, the way heads roll is not based on, frankly, justice. It's based on what's this going to do to our bottom line. And I find that super, super disturbing. I can see how that would especially affect people in fields like sociology, anthropology, sexuality studies, because those are the fields that will be most affected. Definitely. And in fact, I was contacted um, just last week by somebody who's worried about what's happening at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana. I did my degree at Indiana. I did not work at the Kinsey because it was kind of a mess in terms of leadership at that time, in terms of the collections. But she's really contacted me because she's really worried about the fact that the Kinsey is moving in the direction of sort of putting away a bunch of stuff that used to be readily available, not emphasizing the fact that the Kinsey has a large collection of pornography and a large collection of erotica, you know, sort of downplaying that. Of course, Indiana is one of the the most conservative states in the country, and it's a public university. And I think the message is coming down. You know, we don't really want a vision of sex that's about eroticism, is about kink, is about arousal. We want a vision of sex that's about sexual health and reproductive health and these kinds of things. And you're you're seeing it. I mean, you're seeing people, I think, being really afraid to say something that upsets the brand, upsets the 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 corporate overlords. When you were at Northwestern, did you happen to have students, graduate students or undergrads who were trying to do research and also affected by this? I had I was in a program in the medical school and our program was a master's program for um mostly for MD students and JD students. And so our students were not earning PhDs, they were earning master's degrees. So from what I saw, they were not really running up against this. But definitely when the censorship occurred, I engaged my own students in conversations about it because I'm not somebody who thinks covering stuff up is a good idea. I didn't go public with it, but I did start discussing it with my students relatively early on. And they could see the same sorts of signals. I mean, one of the things that happened when the hospital corporation in some ways kind of took control of the medical school. The medical school was having financial issues that they hoped to solve by basically ceding a bunch of control over to the hospital. When that happened, we were issued new ID cards that no longer were Northwestern cards. We were issued cards that said uh, Northwestern Medicine, which was the brand of the medical corporation. And 
you know, it was a little creepy because you get this card and all of a sudden your ID is no longer a university ID. And I started asking myself at that point, like, I wonder if academic freedom still applies to me because I had been doing, you know, really high risk work well before this. I had, I had been doing controversies in transgenderism. I had been looking at controversies in anthropology. I had gone after a major researcher who was doing unethical experimentation. The FDA was angry at me. Cornell's medical school was angry at me. Mount Sinai's medical school was angry at me. I mean, I had a lot of people angry at my research at that point. Um, and so I was really nervous when the card issue was changed. And, you know, what was so funny was they sent us this email and the email said, you're, you're no longer going to use your Northwestern card. You're going to use this new card called Northwestern Medicine. It's not a Northwestern University card. It's Northwestern Medicine. But the good news is you still get 15% discounts at local restaurants. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, is this what people care about at universities is getting a 15% discount at local restaurants? Because what I really want is academic freedom. Yeah, and, then, and then what happened was what happened in terms of censorship. And when I went to my university provost and said, you know, admit that this was censorship and say you won't do it again, he would not do that. And it seemed like he was legitimately afraid at that point of the hospital corporation, which I found deeply concerning. And that's why I finally did just resign. I couldn't, I mean, you can't have any integrity if you have a major book out in academic freedom telling people to stand up for their rights, you know, and you're allowing your, your university dean to tell you what you can and can't publish. Yeah, this ties into the concept of the multiversity. I can't remember who coined that term, but it was a maybe a sociologist or historian who said, we now have multi-universities where universities, not just about research and education, but there's a hospital affiliated it, with it. There's an athletics program, very big athletics program affiliated with the university. There might be professional schools like management schools that are sort of adjunct to the university as well. Yeah. One colleague said to me that um, universities don't own football teams. Football teams own universities. And it really feels like that. I mean, so at Michigan State, just to use an example, because I literally live with it. And by the way, my husband is an administrator at Michigan State. So I also see the administrative side of things. And I, I see what I'm talking about really happening. But one of the things that happens is when there's a football game, a message comes out, don't come to work today because we need the parking lots for the football game. Don't come to work. Don't come do your research. So you'll see people struggling to get into their labs, get into their offices to do research or to meet with students. And they're told, don't do that today because we need the parking for football. I mean, I think that tells you so much about what we're facing. And in terms of, you know, scandals like Penn State, scandals that have occurred around the country, what you see over and over again is the power of athletics because it is that corporate model and athletics is the major part of the brand. Athletics is why a lot of students choose schools. We know that if you survey them, they're choosing schools based on athletics. So the brand is not about research. The brand is not about high quality education that challenges except at places like University of Chicago, which are relatively unusual these days. Right. So for people who are currently in PhD programs, people who are going to be faculty someday or people who are faculty right now, do you have any advice on how to navigate these issues? You know, I really worry about the next generation because part of what's contributing to all of this is job insecurity. And the job insecurity is very bad now. So we know that over half of faculty at universities are on what I would call tenuous lines. In other words, they're not on tenure stream lines. I think it's very easy for universities today to get rid of people. Uh, FIRE has documented over and over again cases of people who have been let go for things that you never could have let people go before, for swearing in a classroom or for making a sex joke or for just upsetting the university system. And so 
I guess part of my advice would be to be cognizant of what's going on. But the other thing I think we have to really move towards is having a faculty retakeover of the university system. And that's going to be very difficult to do at this point because we've given up a lot of control. And the other reason it's going to be difficult to do, the universities have made sure to value less and less faculty governance service. So in the past, faculty service at the governance level was pretty highly valued by university systems. And today it's very devalued. And I think it's devalued in part because they don't want the best and brightest doing it. They don't want people who are going to fight the administrations. And that is a real problem. What you end up with then is people who are doing faculty governance who really don't have, they don't have the fire in them and they don't have the clarity that they need to have. They tend, unfortunately, in many cases to be people who are sort of towards the end of the career and have particular grudges they want to bear out from 30 years ago about some departmental issue. So one thing I would recommend is that junior faculty try as much as possible to engage in faculty governance. And then if you're doing controversial work, I I do recommend be careful. That doesn't mean don't be brave. I think you have to be brave, but you can be careful in terms of fact-checking your own work, making sure you're not caught making mistakes because people can use mistakes against you, being super careful to um, engage your peers and engage the communities that are implicated with your work in order to get feedback from them and have a sense of where you're going. But then document, document, document is one thing I tell people to do. So just make sure you're keeping track of the ways in which you're being careful with your scholarship and careful with your teaching. It is unfortunately the case that in so many of the academic freedom cases, we find ourselves having to basically defend people who are sloppy and people who are jerks. I hate that. I would much rather that we have situations like, well, frankly, my own, where I don't think I'm a jerk and I don't think I'm sloppy. I think the piece I published by William Peace in Atrium was excellent. And everybody who's read it said it's a really great piece and it's impossible to imagine how it could offend a dean at a medical school because it's a piece about medical history from 1978. Like, really? So I think one thing that has to happen is people have to try to be careful. If you're going to need people to defend you, it's a lot easier to get people to defend you if you've done really solid work and you've been careful not to be stupid about it. So that's something I would highly recommend. But then I, again, I mean, one thing I recommend to people is the minute they start to get in trouble with regard to academic freedom that they contact FIRE because it's one of the few organizations out there that will defend you for free and will do so vigorously. And universities do care about their FIRE rating. They really do care about it. So it matters. Yeah. And for our listeners, I would recommend listening to Alice's talk at the FIRE conference that's available on YouTube about an hour and 25 minutes long and you talk about three different topics you start by talking about your history uncovering these sorts of issues and then move on to the issue of branding as well yeah the talk is only about 45 minutes long then there's a Q&A that I thought was really interesting with people talking from really interesting experiences so it was very valuable. That's right. Sorry, I misstated that. I just don't want to scare people who think they're up for you know a hundred and twenty five minute talk, but um, it was it did go on a long time. Yeah. Right, but having seen it, I I would definitely recommend. And if you have the time, listeners out there, also listen to the Q and A because it is interesting. I thought so. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. One theory I've heard about going back to the issue we were talking about. One theory I have heard is that because faculty are now grant getting machines. Any work that doesn't involve getting grants is optimally shifted to someone else. And so you have staff doing a lot of work so that faculty can spend much more time getting grants and doing research with those grants. 
Unfortunately, I think that is really, really true. And and those kinds of people who are often the best and brightest simply have no time for academic governance. And so they have no time to do the engagement that we really could use them doing in terms of making sure we have control of the curriculum in terms of, you know, high quality, but also freedom within the curriculum and then also freedom within research. And it's really become a problem. The ways that we see academic freedom being constricted is partly because of the need to do external funding. So if you have a situation where everybody is expected to be judged primarily on external funding, what's going to happen is you're going to get a narrowing of what gets researched because what gets researched is will be what gets funded. And a lot of work that's controversial and daring will not be funded. Funders don't want to go near work that might get them in trouble in terms of media representation, social media representations. So my kind of work, for example, has been largely done with no funding. I'm a historian. We don't cost very much. Basically, you can feed us and give us a place to sleep, and that's all we need. We need access to libraries. And today, my, my research costs even less today than it used to because photocopying used to be much more expensive. Today, I can use my phone to literally create PDFs, which I can then put on my computer. It's so much cheaper to do my work than ever before. And the result of that is that I can do really good work on very little money, but that's true for almost no disciplines nowadays. Most disciplines need a little bit of money, and the way that funding is being narrowed really, really constricts what kinds of things they can do. And we're seeing defunding at the level of government. We're seeing um, foundations increasingly wanting to fund only what they're interested in politically. And that's a real problem. Whether that's left left end funding or right end funding, it narrows what you can research. You have to, you're, you, we know you're thinking about your funder when you're doing your research. Every research program done on whether or not money influences people in terms of their research shows it does. Therefore, we know that that's one of the ways that research is being constricted. Right. And yeah, I've seen that happen at the universities I've been at. And I also feel like people get rewarded for writing grants that convince the reviewer that their grant is relevant to some issue that it actually might not even be relevant to. But it's just the way of you write grants is, you know, what hot topics to touch on. We definitely find that in sex research. So for example, in sex research today, you'll find almost everything being done in sex research has supposedly some implication for either reproduction or HIV treatment. It's all BS. I mean, so many of the, the good research programs being done don't have anything to do with those things. They're, they're really interesting studies on sexual arousal. They're really interesting studies on the question of where orientation comes from. But you have to sort of pretend that they're somehow about sexual health in order to get funded because human sexuality in itself is too hot a topic to simply fund. And that's why some of the best sex research is happening in places like the Netherlands and Canada, because there it's safer to do that kind of research. And it's a shame. It is. Well, maybe things will change and maybe they won't. But I think this, this might be a good point to wrap up. So any closing thoughts? I was just curious where the Heterodox Academy gets its funding from, because I know you've hired some folks recently and I couldn't find anything on your funding. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't recall the names of the private foundations that we're currently getting money from. We're getting money from two or three private foundations, but we do have um, a very small staff, so we don't have a very large budget at the moment. Okay. Sorry, I can't give you a better answer to that question. That's okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you.